Associated a podcast making venture capital more accessible. My name is Francesca and I'm joined today by Lois. Hello, Lois. Hello, how's it going? Not too bad, thanks. Before we crack on, I just want to let everyone know that this episode is a little bit complicated in terms of some of the terminologies that we use. If you're new to venture capital, why don't you head down to our Notion page, which you can find on the link, to educate yourself on some of the words, some of the jargon that people that aren't in the industry might find unfamiliar. So yeah, head on down there and I hope you enjoy this episode. Right, back to it. I'm very excited to welcome our guest today, Adam, who is a senior investor <laughs> at Cedars. Hi Adam, how are you? Good. Hi guys. Thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, well, you know, what week two of isolation starting to go a bit mad, but, uh, but yeah, not bad. Yeah, it's interesting times we're, we're in. So I guess it's the corona season. Mm, hopefully there won't be any more seasons of it. <laughs> but um, yeah. we were talking to Nick Sandu last week, and he was mm. saying that he created a Slack channel for his group of... Uh, oh, yeah, I heard that. Yeah. Uh, have, has your team done anything to keep the morale up? Yeah, we've, we've kind of got a fun one and a, and a more serious one. One is, I guess, labelled cabin fever and that sort of general funny links, memes, and then the other one, which is a bit more serious, you know, government intervention, all the serious stuff. So, yeah, sharing a lot of stuff. Not a lot of cooking, though. I think, you know, cooking so much more currently. But, um, yeah, we should, do, we should do a bit more of that. We did a MasterChef competition a couple of years ago in the office. So, um, so yeah, I think maybe we should revive that. It's a good but idea. You, were, you were saying that you've lost your sense of taste. Yeah, well, it's unconfirmed, but I've, I'm pretty sure me and my wife have had it, have had COVID. We've lost the taste and smell. It's it's now it's now kind of come back. So, and I was you know it was a bit fevery and shivery, but it only really lasted about a day. So it wasn't really it wasn't really bad. But mm. I think not. I think they're, they're still kind of confirming the symptoms. So who really knows? To be honest, if you're doing a competition remotely on food and and lunches then the only real scoring system you can go on is based on aesthetics. So regardless of whether it tastes nice or not, you can still win. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, just like people just photographing their food, you know, in restaurants. <laughs> make, it, make it look good. It doesn't matter what it tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Um, perhaps we can talk a little bit more about what you do at Cedars and your team and, and how it fits within the, the wider business. Yeah, sure. So... The, the, kind of the core business of, of Cedars is, is the public crowdfunding platform. Um, it's, it's fairly, I think, well-known in, in the space now where it's giving companies an additional source of capital to add to their, their traditional capital mix, um, helping companies raise anything from 50K up to, up to 8 million euros typically, but kind of on average around 750K to a million is, is typically where we're seeing the average round size. So that's typically providing retail investor access to to the asset class and i think people are kind of fairly familiar with the model now um so i lead our institutional team and we work primarily with our network of co-investors driving co-investment activity to the platform it was originally started as a function mainly to help portfolio companies raise follow-on capital we funding anywhere between sort of 10 and 15 companies a month now in terms of volume so it's it's an enormous amount, and from a portfolio perspective, you know that roughly equates to about nearly 420 or so portfolio companies. And you know, obviously, when they're growing quite rapidly and coming back 
to raise more capital and and actually just are in need of that larger strategic Series A, Series B investor. And we realized that actually we really needed to help them, I guess, raise follow-on capital. We've gradually been doing a number of organic co-investments with, you know, Draper, Oxford, Jamjar over the years, but had never really kind of formalized those relationships in terms of sharing deal flow and driving co-investments. So we started getting a lot of our portfolio companies coming up to saying, oh, so you guys did a co-investment with a Draper, would they be interested in our Series A, for example? So this is starting to happen, you know, a lot more regularly. So yeah, so now sharing capital with 500 institutions or so, and that's roughly, that's everything from an accelerator fund all the way up to, you know, investment banks, private banks, um, family offices, et cetera. So um, as you can imagine, that's quite a, that's quite a high number of uh, investors to, to work with. So, um, so A, it's, it's kind of giving our institutional co-investor base with access to our portfolio and our, our new businesses coming in. Uh, and then equally, it's following capital from our co-investor network. So, if, for example, you know, MBS or, or True were, uh, I guess, leading a funding round. It's then helping them find the remainder of the round and listing that on the platform. So, so yeah, it's kind of, it's made of driving the deal flow sharing relationships and co-investment activity um, on that side. On the, on the other side, it's been, it's been on fundraising. So we've raised and deployed about 25 funds now to date, and that's been typically accelerator funds or what we call sort of co-investment vehicles. So, so accelerator funds that we've, we've worked on, you know, Pi Labs, Collider, it's giving these types of organizations the infrastructure to raise capital into a cohort of companies. So not only we're helping them raise capital, but also we're kind of the back office infrastructure to deploy the capital into those funds. So they don't need to become a regulated investment manager, for example. So those have been quite popular um, for, for our investors anyway. And then, then there's the other, I guess, more recent structure that we've done is where CDs can act as a limited partner in an institutional fund. So we're an LP in Seacamp's fourth fund, running a feeder fund structure, allowing 70 of their founder network to invest into, into their fourth fund. So if you think about a Seacamp from a GP's perspective, adding in another 70, 100 individuals as individual LPs becomes an admin nightmare. Um, so we're providing the infrastructure not only to aggregate those investors under one LP, and then we're managing the ongoing drawdowns on an ongoing basis. So it's providing the kind of the tech infrastructure to, to help them raise that capital. So, so yeah, we don't, you know, that was fairly ad hoc transaction. And, we, you know, hopefully we're going to do more of those. There's been quite a bit, quite a bit of interest, but it's, it's making sure that we've, I guess, prioritizing things correctly on throughout product roadmap. So, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of the, uh, what we're doing on the, on the fun side. Awesome. And I just want to try and condense all this information. <laughs> So in terms of the different things that you were saying, so the main thing Cedars is known for is the, the crowdfunding where individuals can come on and invest their money onto the platform. And then you guys help them also raise funding from institutional investors. And the third thing that you also do is um, help raise money for accelerator programs or businesses that want to fund a subset of businesses. Have I missed anything? No, no, that makes sense. Uh, there's one thing, didn't, didn't talk about the API bit. So yeah, so one, one element I've got to mention was that um, we recently developed an API for a company called Oval Money. It's Italian, English, FinTech. Developed an API where the customers of that app can invest into their company, but without having to go to the Cedars platform and set up an account and invest. So we are pulling in information 
from the Cedars platform and piggybacking on the on the KYC being done by that business. So if you think about it, if you think about the likes of Revolut, Monzo, any of these kind of consumer fintechs, we can actually execute their funding round from their customers, then investing into their own funding round. So you think of the applications of that if we're working with a, a trading platform or any other kind of infrastructure where they don't want their clients to be signing up to Cedars, we can actually list Cedars fundraising companies you know, on, say, trading platforms infrastructure, for example, and think about kind of white labeling the Cedars platform. So then you can increase your addressable investor base quite considerably. <laughs> I love it. I love the pitch. Uh, <laughs> I would like to go back just really quickly to something you said towards the, the beginning of your what I'm sure is a well-rehearsed pitch. <laughs> I was just really struck by the number of portfolio companies and you've got, you said like a 400 strong co-investor network. That That is just an enormous number of stakeholders to keep track of. I wondered, like, can you give us a sense for how you manage that workload in terms of, you know, how many people are in your team? What kind of, you, you said 10 to 15 companies per month you help raise. That's, that's massive. Yeah, I mean, that, that's on, on the main platform. Um, you know, obviously, that number will vary depending on how many companies are raising. But, you know, last year, we did, you know, 250 funding rounds. And that's mainly, you know, we've got a, we've got a whole investment team doing the due diligence on, on the companies and actually executing on all the legals. Because, you know, part of the value prop for an individual is that they can build a portfolio of early stage companies without having to execute their own legal agreements, essentially. So we've got a whole team of, I think, 10, 15 or so in our investment team who are executing those transactions and doing the doing the legal work. And my team doesn't actually really get involved in uh, the execution of those rounds, but we've built a lot of tech to help automate a lot of the processes and a lot of our own um, proprietary apps, applications where we can help automate the diligence process. We're, going to make, well, you know, we're a VC-backed business ourselves and looking to scale to become a global private equity marketplace. We're currently sitting in the primary market, C to Series B, which is the majority of our, our funding rounds, but you know, ultimately looking at maybe doing you know, the full spectrum of company maturity from C to IPO in the primary market, then also in the secondary as well. Most of the power of, of being able to, I guess, handle that volume of transactions is the, is the tech stack we built. Um, so, you know, obviously it's the execution of, the, of these types of transactions can be incredibly manual. And I think from what my team does, it, it is a lot more manual because when you're helping companies raise institutional capital, it's a very different um, and much more bespoke process. Um, everyone's diligence processes are, are different. Everyone has different structures, different share classes, etc. And it's all down to negotiation of that transaction. But we use fairly model documents um, throughout the platform so they can be executed um, fairly rapidly. So, um, you know, we try and use model docs where we can, but um, you know, ultimately, again, each, each, each round is going to be different. So, um, so yeah, we try and try to, um, you know, build as much tech to scale up the volume of transactions um, that we're doing a year. Um, and, you know, from a post-investment point of view, I guess company and investor communication is done by the platform. You know, they've got their own post-investment page to keep investors up to date. Um, and that's, you know, that doesn't need any, uh, any human, human input. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a challenge for sure. And that's kind of what we've been focusing on is building the, building the plumbing of, on the infrastructure of the platform to, to handle a volume of transactions. So institutional investors log on as if they were an individual and, and put the money in or, or is there a more bespoke process and there's not a, not a platform? So the first bit, it's, no, it's a good question. I was actually going to come on to that. So the, the institutional piece 
um, we've actually created um, something called our deal room, which is at the moment a bit of an MVP of an institutional version of the platform. You know, in reality, a VC is not going to be logging onto the platform, reviewing one of the campaigns available and clicking invest. Because once a round is listed on the platform, the, the terms of the round are set. They've already been out in the market for three, four months, whether it's VCs or whatever anchor investor that they are looking to help lead the round. Majority of the allocation of the round is done. So the point of, of our team and what we've built with deal, well, deal Room is giving advanced access to our institutional co-investors months in advance of it listing on the main platform. You know, because obviously there's a much greater information and due diligence requirement and lead time when you're deploying capital on a discretionary basis as a VC. You know, you need to do three, four months of diligence. You need to meet the companies. You need to negotiate the terms of the round. Every round's bespoke. There isn't a cookie cutter approach, you know, unfortunately at the moment, as much as we can try and digitize the process, um, it's very difficult for a, for a VC to do that. They've all got different investment strategies, et cetera. So um, by giving them that in advance lead time and actually access to our pipeline months in advance, then we just help facilitate those introductions. Um, we can help the company as much as possible become investor ready, give them comments on their, on their deck and make sure they've got the right documents available. But ultimately, it's helping them just find the, the right investor quickly. Um, we work with so many portfolio companies. They've showed us their investor list, the people that they've reached out to. And I'm sure you guys are probably the same. You probably get pitch decks which aren't, aren't suitable uh, or don't even fit. You know, if you're a, a fintech seed fund, and you're getting sort of Series B, you know, a consumer deal. It's, it, it's nuts. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of founders, unfortunately, don't do a lot of research and who they reach out to and end up, you know, mail merging a pitch deck. So it's trying to make that process much more efficient for them. So rather than going out for nine to 12 months building their own investor relationships, we can say, actually, we've got five investors that would be perfect for this raise. We know that they're deploying um, and this is their investment strategy. And it's, particularly in the kind of the family office space when their investment strategy isn't necessarily well known or, or, or even you know, published on their, on their websites. Um, so yeah, it's trying to make that process much more efficient. And then hopefully they'll find a term sheet and then we can then raise the rest of the round um, on the platform. That's kind of one element. And then I guess the recent structure that we've done is where seed is going to act as a limited partner in an institutional fund. That would be something that we would list on, on the platform. Yeah, so you, you know, it would look exactly the same in terms of look and feel. And, but from an investor's point of view, you know, whether that's, that's retail or institutional, they would still execute one investment into that fund campaign. Got it. Um, but then they would be the, let's say, the accelerator would then identify the companies, say 10 companies over 12 months, and, but then seeders would be executing those rounds. So we would, we would still be the investor um, sitting on the cap table of the company representing all the underlying investors. Got it. Um, so yeah, that, that's either, and that, that could be kind of a co-investment vehicle as well. So we could be co-investing alongside a VC, whether that's an institutional fund or a, uh, or a retail fund. Yeah. Um, so yeah, does that kind of answer your question? It does. And just making sure that I'm right in thinking that Cedars doesn't have a separate fund, similar to what I believe Syndicate Room does, where if X amount is committed, Cedars will then also put in um, some money that they've raised separately from a pool of either like high net worth individuals or from crowdsourcing. Because I'm aware that at one point, because I'm an investor on Cedars, um, that you guys were raising on the platform as well for your own self. So was that in for like a separate fund as well? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I was going to come on to that as well. Um, <laughs> Sorry, so, uh, no, 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 it's good. Uh, there's so many elements to what, what the platform's capable of. Um, 
so yes, you're right. So there's so the funds I was talking about are external funds, we call them. So they're run and operated and deals are originated by a third party, so a VC funder um, or an accelerator. So yes, we raised uh, and are almost finished deploying our EIS 100 fund. Wow. Simon, yeah, similar model to that of the one from Syndicate Room that you mentioned, where it's it's giving investors, I, I guess, kind of a market kind of beta exposure to 100 companies that fit a predefined criteria on the platform and REI is qualifying. So Fund 28, similar thesis in the sense that investors get deployed to 28 companies, but we did it um, as 100, 100 companies, just mainly because of the, the volume of, of companies that fit a certain criteria. It made sense because um, what we always try and do is build a lot of data into, into the asset class and help investors um, guess get a real-time IRR analysis on their, on their portfolio so we're kind of digging into that because the last portfolio report we did the first kind of 600 funding rounds we did across the whole platform there was an IRR of I think 12 point just over 12 percent which was you know including tax relief and stuff was um it was about 25 percent and that's that needs to be updated that's about 18 months old but you know giving investors rather than kind of picking deal by deal it's for those investors that are, are kind of cash rich time poor and they don't have time to sift through pitch decks, but they want to have, I guess, exposure to the asset class and the and exposure to the whole marketplace. Um, and by you know, once we've got preemption rights, because we build preemption rights into all of our um, shareholders' agreement, it gives them the ability to then follow on on their on the winners, but then also sell out through the secondary market as well. So it's a it's a different angle to say a managed EIS fund, you know, like your octopuses or you know other some PCTs, um, and it gives it gives a much broader exposure, but it's it helps them, um, I guess, you know, double down on their winners, but also provide more liquidity. So that was kind of the idea. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of almost fully deployed at the moment. So we'll hopefully be raising another one. So whether that'll be the same thesis, we might look at doing something like a co-investment fund or narrowing that down and or helping larger institutions raise and deploy a more bespoke type fund. And we built the kind of the tech in the back end to automatically deploy that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So cool. cool. <laughs> so, yeah. it is really cool i mean cedars is such a unique organization and it, i think it's probably fair to say it's pretty complex as well um, <laughs> you've spoken about quite a lot of different things that you do yeah. um yeah. what is it like what's it like adam to work at such a complex unique fund if if you call yourselves a fund uh it's it's really interesting because just thinking about it from a sort of day-to-day experience type viewpoint um you're kind of getting two elements to it one there's the investment deal by deal type work where you're working specifically with a founder we're getting deep into their financing route into their into their capital requirement um working with them really closely and helping them raise you know raise a funding round um whether that's you know a new a new round new business we're working with or a portfolio company so getting you know Getting to work quite closely with those founders is, is very cool. But then also, it's the kind of the operating side when we're we're trying to, you know, obviously scale Cedars itself as its own business, building new institutional products. This team has been really um, unique in the sense that because I joined about four years ago now to to set up the investor institutional side of the business, and you know, we tried a number of different elements to try and. Um, I guess build liquidity into the platform, and it's it's you know it's really challenging turning a what could be seen as a B two C business on the investment side, but turn that into the B two B offering. So you know whether that's 
you know, looking at building new fund products, whether that's working with distribution partners or even co-investors. There's so much potential to the platform. You know, work on, on the investor side, it's been really challenging, but it's, it's great because you kind of get those two kind of aspects to the work. You know, if you're working purely at a VC, you're obviously getting deep into the commercial analysis, and which is a great experience. And, you know, I think with this, you kind of get a bit of both. It's kind of the operating side and, and the investment side. Really cool. Yeah, for sure. And was it that duality that attracted you to the role four years ago? Yeah, absolutely. I think it was back then, it was a very high growth. And I don't want to use the word disruptive, but it's, it's awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, back, back then, it's very different. It's very different business. You know, there's only, I think I was probably 25 or something, working in a small sort of co-working space. Um, and it, I think we just raised a Series A. Um, so, you know, on a, on a big hiring spree, big growth spurt. Um, and it was, you know, it's nice because you kind of, it was starting a business within a business. We've had to develop, you know, what's the value prop? Do we have investors to work with? You know, what are we actually doing? We tested a number of different areas and it, I found that element a lot more entrepreneurial. You know, obviously like reviewing pitch decks and turning that into a, a co-investment service kind of came later down the line. But there was a lot of analysis on the platform investment side. You know, how are we identifying any trends? You know, how can we build liquidity into the platform? You know, we quickly then moved from trying to work with introducers, you know, either financial advisors, or whoever, uh, and actually quickly moved to working with, you know, VCs and early stage principal investors, because actually they were the investor base, the market that was actually deploying capital into to early stage companies. So, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of trial and error. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of a lot of autonomy as well in, in trying to figure out actually what the direction is. Yeah, absolutely. Francesca mentioned the chat we had with Nick a couple of weeks ago and I think we were talking mm. with him a little bit about he's been a, a founder and is now a VC and we talked a little bit about you know the dilemma yeah. of what would you rather do and both things obviously have their attractions it sounds like you've kind of got the best of both worlds yeah I mean well now now I think so yeah absolutely and it's um it's been it's been a hard old slog don't get me wrong but uh well, I think because I initially came from you know, a, much, a much more kind of institutional. I started off at Morgan Stanley, finance accounting grad. It's a couple of years after the, the financial crash, banking sector was just about recovering. I didn't really want to be an accountant. I wanted to work in investments in some shape or form. Researched a few different asset classes. I ended up working for Morgan Stanley's, um, working with credit derivatives in their finance teams in the middle office role. Absolutely loathed it. If you're comparing it from an asset class investment perspective, private equity to you know, to credit derivatives, you know, there's they're, they're completely different worlds. I think there's there's such a high degree of separation, even from public equities. If you're going to work in asset management, you're working behind spreadsheets and financial models and having very little, I guess, collaboration and connection to a founding team. And early stage companies are all about the story of the founder. See, the best founders, they can tell their story really well in the pitch. And that's the element that I found so interesting that such an admiration for those types of founders you've got to be a jack of all trades obviously they are going to be experts in either the technology or the market that they've been working in but have to also do a bit of marketing do you know your accounting and modeling and and it, it's such a such a stressful and um you know challenging thing to start a business i mean not, I, I haven't done one myself but i an analogous place is starting a company within the scene it's been quite similar you know i've been doing my marketing collateral and doing you know um, it's fairly similar, I found. Yeah. So, I mean, after Morgan Stanley then moved to, to an investment manager called Ingenious, um, they ran a number of VCT, EIS, and SEIS funds. 
um, either investing across kind of property, clean energy and media were the sectors they were known for, but also running kind of more generalist venture strategies. Um, and that was kind of, I guess, the first step. Again, looking at it from more from a, from a tax point of view, which is really boring, but but actually the underlying assets and underlying investments were really, really cool. You know, they had a, they had a festival portfolio, they had a, a seed fund. And, they, you know, it was, it, that's kind of when I started to move slightly more into, you know, I guess, the startup world. And then the crash, all the kind of the, the alternative financing models became started becoming a lot more um, mainstream. Not only sort of equity crowdfunding, peer-to-peer lending, invoice financing, kind of post-crash started becoming quite um, you know, mainstream methods of financing. So then there was just... It was quite a nice move to see this. So yeah, that was kind of the journey. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it makes sense. But I imagine the job was pretty hot. So what do you think made you stand up against the other candidates that applied? Oh, good question. Uh, do you know what? I think it's actually just being so overprepared. Fortunately, I had flu or something I, either way I was ill for the week before my presentation oh no um, so I got through to the, the third round luckily there was a lot of crossover in terms of my experience working with the IS funds and and I think that was an issue of direction that we wanted to go with with seniors exploring kind of building our own EIS fund etc so there's some complementary experience there but I think yeah it was just being so overprepared and I spent you know 10 days before my interview putting together my 90-day plan which was the which is the third round a, it's making your application relevant and, and doing the right research. You know, when we started building out the team, then there's now three of us in the team. Uh, I don't know Patricia and, and Louise Harvey, but um, when we started hiring Patricia, you know, actually starting sifting through CVs, and actually there's, you can tell from a mile off when a person hasn't done any research at all. You know, in the cover letter, they don't make it relevant to the company. It's a cut and paste job, and it's the same thing for your CV as well. You know, a lot of people come from professional services, financial services. They all want to move to a startup because they're all fed up with working for a dinosaur that doesn't innovate, which, you know, you can't put any of your own personality into the role or into the or into any of the services that you're doing. Um, people get bored very easily. So it was a very hot, it was, you're right, it was a hot um, kind of area. And then, you know, it was amazing, actually, the amount of really senior people in in investment banks, you know, county firms, consultancy firms, like very senior, you know, looking to apply for a relatively junior role. I'm not sure whether that they they're just so desperate for a career change, or they just haven't really done their research. But you know, I think in many cases they just haven't done their research, and you can tell when someone really wants a job, even if you're looking at it through a cover letter and a CV, um, and then that comes across obviously in there, you know, when you start interviewing. But yeah, I think it's just doing research is is, is so key. Good tips there for sure. And we've kind of talked about your past, your present, <laughs> and you summarised it really nicely earlier of, of where Cedars wants to go in a nice tagline there. Global private equity marketplace. Yes. So global interested me there because currently, if I'm right, I'm thinking Cedars are predominantly in the UK. So is, is there plans to go international? Yeah, so we consider ourselves pan-European, at least. So we've, from very early on, we've had, uh, our co-founders are uh, Portuguese, so we've got our uh, sort of back office tech, tech and development team in Lisbon, so about 15 or 20 or so. We've also got a team in Berlin and, and Amsterdam, so covering deal origination from European, those European territories. So obviously, you know, DAC, Benelux, Iberia. Um, so, you know, yeah, you're right, you know, majority of, companies we fund are UK based and the majority of our investors are UK based. 
but we've seen a massive spike, you know, the last few years, you know, particularly since we've had teams on the ground um, in not only the non-UK companies that we've been funding, but also the cross-border, I guess, investments. You know, a lot of UK investors looking for non-UK deals, but obviously, you know, EIS, SEIS, which, which isn't a tax fee that you really get anywhere else. Mm. Um, well, at least that's generous. So, yeah, you know, we, we've got investors from, I believe, 90 countries. Very cool. Um, so, and that's just that's on the platform. So, we can accept investment from any resident within the EEA in terms of our regulatory permissions. But we've also added another twenty-five countries that we can accept investment from as as third-country partners. So, Russia, Middle Eastern countries, South America. I mean, it's a, it's a variety of additional countries, but we can now accept investment through the platform. It's gradually adding territory by territory from the investor side, but then also the company side. From the company side, it's still mainly working within the EA because each territory will have local legal framework that we need to work within. Mm. So once we've done one deal in one country, it's very easy for us to, to replicate the process. Some countries are, are trickier than others. Territories like US, Australia, you know, are still really challenging for us from a, from a regulatory perspective. But on the upside, at least on the institutional side, because we're not actually executing the transaction, we can be a bit more flexible. And, you know, so we want to work with a lot more US funds and we're starting to do that a lot more. And it's because it's working mainly kind of offline sharing deal flow. It's we can be a bit more, um, a bit more kind of widespread on that side. So, uh, so yeah, you know, that the plan has been global and, and working with digital uh, companies across the world. So that's the plan. So um, I think in the short term, um, we're going to be focusing more Nordics, Eastern European, Eastern Europe, um, as well as obviously the Benelux and uh, Iberia territories. I mean, bringing up the elephant in the room, obviously these these are fantastic plans, but given the situation right now, what, what's your initial strategy? Every fund seems to have a slightly, slightly different one of moving forwards right now. Yeah, it's... You know, I think we're still quite we're still quite early on in the pandemic. I think in terms of our initial response, I think like most investors, focusing on portfolio, making sure that they they get through the next sort of three to six months. You know, I don't think anyone's really sure yet what the long term effects are going to be. But we're, you know, I think it's fairly safe to say you can expect some kind of fundamental change to our consumption habits, to travel habits. Um, you know, they're going to be sectors that are hit and already are hit really hard. You know, I think whether it's focusing from new funding rounds and helping raise fresh external capital, it's going to be focusing on those sectors that are doing well. You know, your, your in-home in entertainment, deliveries, conferencing, you know, all those types of sectors that are doing well will start to see investors still, still deploying capital. Obviously, there's going to be massive downward pressure on valuations, but that's, I think, the market kind of reset that everyone's been expecting. You know, the last couple of years have been pretty frothy, I think is a term I've heard a few times. Um <laughs> To say the least. So, so yeah, I think there's just there'll be an adjustment in the types of companies that get funded across the board, whether it's on a platform or through DC or whoever. And um, but then we're quite lucky in the sense that you know we expect this big spike in convertibles, especially over the next you know three to six months to make sure companies have got enough runway just to get through this economic shock. We can transact advanced subscription agreements through the platform as well as straight equity and funds. So that's an instrument we use quite regularly. So. We'll, we'll be seeing a lot more of those. I think while kind of companies at least kind of delay a big Series A raise or whatever, and they'll probably that get pushed back to Q3, Q4, again, just to get over this, this kind of short term. You know, we're an online business as well. So I guess that that helps in terms of hasn't really been a huge amount of disruption from a from a day-to-day ops point of view. But obviously, you know, if we're looking to move international as well, you, know, it, you can invest quite easily from your own home 
in a company from overseas. So that does kind of play in, in, into our favor. And a lot of the work that we do is digital. So it's, um, I think we can, we can adapt quite, quite quickly. Um, so you know, provided there are companies raising. In moving on to, I guess, the secondaries, what we'll start seeing as well, you know, people who have individual angel portfolios being able to tr- transfer their shareholdings under Cedars nominee. So using us as the digital infrastructure to hold their portfolio and actually trade shares through the secondary market. So even if there's, even if primary deal volumes start dropping, we can still do a lot of work on the secondary side as well. So, so you know, I think there's still, even if the C to Series A deal flow drops, we can still work much later stage and also in, in secondary transactions as well. So there's, there's, there's still plenty to do. So I don't think we're hugely worried, but I get, you know, you, you never know these things. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like there are a lot of angles for you guys to consider. Mm. Um, actually, let's go to question time because we've got a question from our community that focuses on this. So this is a question from Julia. And Julia wants to get your thoughts on what founders raising seed funds at the moment should be focusing on, given that it's quite a, a difficult terrain to navigate. Yeah, I think a couple of things, and I think COVID or not, you know, I think A is, is making sure that they're flexible entering the process. Um, I think particularly with the terms of the valuation they're, they're willing to accept. Work with a few founders who are set rigid on what they are willing to offer an investor before entering into any kind of conversation. Start as flexible as possible. Um, you know, have a number in your head and what you want to achieve in terms of target valuation. But ultimately, this is a two-sided transaction. That and also just do your research, get to know who you're looking to raise capital from. What are their objectives? What are they getting targeted to achieve? You know, I think if a VC's investment strategies can be very different from, you know, an EIS fund or a, or a VCT uh, in terms of investment strategy. Um, and making sure you're tailoring your pitch to suit that type of investor. Um, you know, so many times you see either altering your pitch deck or even within, within a meeting, um, making sure it's relevant for that investor. Um, and then I guess in, in kind of COVID world, it's, it's addressing it. Don't just assume that it's, it's economy as usual, business as usual. It's not, you know, I think we've, you know, we've got a few term sheets from some of our co-investors coming into the companies we've been working with and they've come in, you know, just before kind of the outbreak and they're now pushing in an, an additional layer of DD in terms of, you know, what is the COVID impact? So make sure that's fully mapped out and run a number of other model scenarios around what is the assumption of having, you know, almost minimal revenue for the next three to six months? You know, what are those scenarios? How does that look like? Because that just shows that you're prepared and, you know, you're not just carrying on as normal. Um, so, yeah, those are, I guess those are a couple of things off the top of my head. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that necessarily before, but I suppose it actually gives investors another angle to assess a founder's or founding team's kind of approach to things and Mm. and actually it's not not necessarily going to be detrimental to their fundraise provided that they've thought about the impacts and what they're going to do and for the most part all of the founders that I've spoken to in the last few weeks have been incredible at responding to this Mm. and I think I don't necessarily subscribe to the view that this will separate you know the weak from the strong Um, I think there are too many kind of unknowns for that to be true but I do think that a lot of founders We'll, we'll be able to rise to the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, this, this, this can turn out well for some, for some companies. So, yeah, it's just, I think it's just having the kind of emotional intelligence to make sure that that's actually being, being addressed. Don't wait for an investor to, 
to ask those questions, you know, give them that information, be, be upfront with that information and just show that you've actually thought about it um, in, a, in a sort of worst case scenario. Yeah, for sure. And mm. again, that's good practice regardless of yeah. what circumstances you're right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, do it, do it anyway, but uh, yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Um, Adam, is there anything that you want to plug or talk about um, <laughs> while we've got you? Um, anything you want to plug? Oh God. Uh, Lots of stuff. I think quite a lot of stuff I've, I've, I've plugged anyway. I think, you know, for the VCs that we, I guess, we're listening to this um, and we haven't met, you know, drop us a line, good to meet for a, meet for a coffee. And then, yeah, it's just kind of just making sure we're building those relationships and making sure we're kind of sharing deal flow, sharing ideas. Um, other than that, you know, have, log on to the platform, have a, have a browse. Um, Great. Where can best. people get hold of you? <laughs> Email's fine. So adam.reeve at cedars.com. I mean, or... Twitter, I don't use Twitter. Tweet me. Okay. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't, nobody tweet Adam. He won't get it. Nobody tweet me. I, I, I might get it. <laughs> I, I need to up my social game. It's um, it's really it's really bad, especially Twitter. Oh, you can use this time wisely then. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've got one quick question, Adam. Are you hiring yeah. at the moment? Uh, not in my team, but. I'm sure that the tech and development team are, are hiring. They normally are. So yeah, I think we'll, we'll have a few listed on on the website. So I, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head, but um, but yeah, dev, have a look at the, the careers uh, section on the platform. Good to know. Good to know. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, enjoy the rest of quarantine. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, <laughs> coming thanks, Adam, D- I'm coming up to DIY haircut time. Oh so, uh, yeah. That's gonna, that's gonna be interesting. That will be a good one to add to the Slack channel. Yeah, <laughs> in the in the in the serious one, obviously. Of course, yeah, of course. You know, you've got to you've got to look good. It won't look good. Won't look good. <laughs> Great. So, thank you very much, Adam. We've really enjoyed talking to you, and to all of our lovely listeners, thank you so much for tuning into Associated. You can get updates on the latest guests and episodes on Twitter at associated underscore pod. And if you want to get in touch with us via email, like Adam, you can find us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com. Mom!